As you're being seated, if you would please turn with me your copies of God's Word to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. For our third and maybe final sermon out of Genesis chapter 2. We've been working our way slowly through this great chapter. uh, And it has been something that has been worthy of our consideration. Uh, as As you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis, which I have called the introduction to everything. I've heard a uh, professor this week say that in Genesis is nearly every major Christian doctrine finds its place here in this book. And certainly we see the introduction to all of these in these first few chapters of Genesis. So it's been critical that we take a close look at it, which we are finishing today here in Genesis 2. And now what I'm going to do, we've been going through the book, the chapter as, as a whole, but this time we're going to be focusing here on the last portion. I'm going to overlap a little bit with what we looked at last week. Well, I'll start in verse 15, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. So please, listen carefully, because this is God's word to us. He has spoken, so let us hear. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and brought every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this word that you have given to us, this divine instructions For our lives, I pray that we would hear and that we would believe that you would peel back those layers of sin that so easily blind us to your word and help us to see this morning with fresh eyes a familiar passage. And may it warm our hearts today. We ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we took a look at the middle part of chapter two and we discussed that God makes covenants. And we saw how we could learn what God's name was, that this is the Lord God who is doing all of these things. 
Now, covenant is a really important concept, and we'll see this again and again through Scripture. We see covenants made between two, uh, between two people in Genesis 31-44, which is between Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. It was a famous covenant made between David and his friend Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, verse 16. And in fact, covenants have been made with whole countries. We see that in Joshua 9.15, when Joshua makes a covenant with the Jebusites. But the covenant that we see here is unlike those. This is a very special covenant that has particular terms and a particular effect on the people that make it. The promises that we see in those other covenants when Jacob and Laban make a covenant that they are not going to harm each other because they have been trying to con each other for the last 14 years by that point. We'll explore that in a little while. But that covenant does not mean that Jacob and Laban were one flesh. There's no promise for that there. Same thing with David and Jonathan or Joshua and the Jebusites for that matter. This is something that is very unique and special. This is not like some sort of, well, we need a social contract in order to build countries together, so we came up with this idea. No, we did not. Marriage is God's idea with his form of how this should take place. This is a special covenant that is meant to mirror the relationship between Christ and his church, which is why we read Ephesians 5 at the start of it. And we'll come back to that as we go along. And indeed, this concept of marriage is something that the Bible uses again and again. Here, at the beginning of the book, it starts with a marriage, Adam and Eve becoming one flesh. And at the end of the book, that is the book of the Bible, Revelation, we see another marriage of Christ and his church being brought together. This is a beautiful thing. So if the Lord is going to make that big a deal of it, then we best know how this is supposed to look. And it should be of no surprise that this is something that is being under attack in our culture. Now, in these sorts of things, we contend to, when we think about marriage and uh, the church's viewpoint of it, there is, and it it is right that we decry things like what we see in the LGBT movement, something that is trying to redefine what marriage looks like. This marriage and this concept is not Plato. We can morph into whatever is convenient for us. The same can be said of no-fault divorce, just breaking off our our covenants just for any old reason. There are biblical commands for some of those things, biblical, biblical allowances, but that's not the ideal. And we'll mention those things today, but what I would like us to actually look at is to look at ourselves individually, our own marriages. There are things we can talk about in the culture, but I think that the reforming of that, reforming begins here in us as individuals and those that are in this room. And by the way, single people, this is not the time for us to check out either. (laughs) The Bible actually has a lot to say about this because it turns out that most of the problems that are in marriage are not actually because of marriage. The problems that are in marriages are from the individuals that enter into it. Marriage reveals the problems that we have. They don't create them. So for those of you in here who are single, marriage is not going to change you. The single you is the married you, as one article I read this week had put it. So if we want to have these good marriages, 
what we can see pictured both here and ultimately in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to need Christ to transform our hearts now. For those of us that are in marriage, your hope is not in your spouse getting better. Your hope is in Jesus transforming you and in how you relate to them. So the sooner we get used to putting the gospel to our own hearts first, the better prepared we will be for our own marriages. Now, what we're going to look at as we jump into this section today is our point number three on our outline in which God is convening marriage. So let's see how he does this. Here in verse 18, we get something that's quite surprising in this relationship, uh, in this uh, narrative here in Genesis. All the way through, God has been creating stuff, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. Light, mountains, waters, all the big hits. It's all great. But then we get to the end. Adam is placed in paradise, and God says it's not good. That man should be alone. You'll notice here, this is something special in that he's, is, is he alone? He's with God, isn't he? God sees something unique that is needed for people. There needs to be this relationship with one another. I think part of that reason is because this is how, in, in, a, in a certain way, how God experiences relationship. Yes, God is one God, but he is in a trinity. He is in three persons. He's relational. So if he wants to make this creature in his image, there's going to need to be relationship. That's what he's going to mirror. Notice, and when we, get, when we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is meant to be the image of God is in both. You need both man and woman to fully image God. So here's what he's going to do. Now, he's going to make the point that there is only one way forward here. And it's going to begin by saying, I'm going to make him a helper. And what does he do? Well, he brings every beast of the field and the birds of the heavens and brings them to him. Now, some will take a look at this passage and we'll say, aha, Moses fell asleep at his desk again. The animals came first and then man was created. What's this business about animals being created now? Again, Genesis, I think, is giving us the, the timeline. I think here is just like he's caused trees and fruits and things to spring up in Eden. I think he's doing the same thing with, with the animals, just bringing them up to bring them to Adam. And here he brings them all in front of Adam and asks him to name them. Now, in this society, to name something would be to have dominion over it, to have authority over this. So as he's naming each one of these creatures, there's two things that are happening here. One, we see, as one commentator pointed out, the first instance of a scientist. Adam is classifying all of these creatures that are in front of him. In fact, I came across one quote that said something to the effect of that science is just language. All science is doing, science isn't discovering anything. It's just teaching us how to talk about it. Gravity always existed before that apple hit Isaac Newton in the head. It was always there. But scientists will help us see how does it work. Give us a language and a description for it. And that's what we're doing here. Adam is being the first scientist as he goes through and names all of these creatures. 
But there's something else happening here other than just filling our biology textbooks with a number of things to memorize when we go to school. What's happening here is we're showing conclusively this is not going to work. And this is something that should be interesting to us, especially in an agrarian society. Here, Adam has been told to work and keep a garden. What is going to be in people's minds who are used to farming as he hears, oh, he's going to bring him some creatures. That's going to help him a lot in the garden. He can get an oxen going. He can plow some fields. It's amazing what you can accomplish. Back at that time, that was your John Deere. was an oxen. This was how you got things done. And if you didn't have an animal, the ability to produce food for yourself was really difficult. So the idea that Adam would be able to have help of all of these creatures to harness the beauty and the supplies of the garden probably would have hit a lot of these agrarian people as saying, ah, there it is. There's going to be that help. But we find here in this text that that's not the case. None of them was found to be a helper for him. None of this was going to provide what Adam actually needed. That should strike us as something. It should strike us that marriage is not about being pragmatic. Or that what we're doing is we're, we're, we are getting someone to help us out with the laundry. Someone to get the dishes done. Someone to watch the kids while we do this, that, or the other thing. It's a lot more than that. Here, we tend to look at the name helper as seeing as something as diminutive or something that's not as important to someone who is running the show. But here, actually, we'll see in other places that God himself takes on the title of helper. There's something more that's happening here. Adam needs someone to complete the image of God. And a donkey or an ox, as helpful as all of those things are, is not going to do that. He needs someone to complement him and he needs someone to complement as well that fits together in this explanation. So here's what he's going to do. So God goes about and he says, all right, I'm going to make you a woman. Now, when, what happened the last time we wanted to make a human being? Got a bunch of dirt from the ground, breathed life into it, right? We would think, well, that's the recipe for humanity. Dust plus breath equals living soul. But here God seems to do a remix on his recipe. What is he doing here? Honestly, some of this sounds kind of crazy, if we're honest. Sounds like something from other mythologies. Here he's pinching off a piece of Adam, breaking out a rib, and he's going to change this thing into a woman. Does he need a rib to do that? No. So then then God must be trying to tell us something by doing it this way. So what is he doing? I think he's got three different things that he's doing here with this rib. The one is that I think here when Adam is saying in this other part in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones, here Adam is being quite literal. This is a literal rib that was pulled from his side and made into someone else. But what was physical for Adam is spiritual for the rest of us. Remember from our Ephesians chapter 5 when we were saying that we are to take care of our wives as our own bodies? If you have ever bruised or broken a rib you know how much you protect and care for that, don't you? That when it hurts, you hurt. This is something that you're taking deep care of and nourishment and doing whatever it takes to make sure that this rib is as cared for as possible. It's the same care that God wants us as husbands to bring to our wives. 
loving, devoted attention. As if it was taken from a rib from ourselves. We care for them as if we would our own flesh. I think that's the first reason. It's a a literal visual picture of what the spiritual reality is supposed to be. I think the second point is that this is meant to tell us that Eve is just as human and just as in the image of God as Adam is. This is something that has gotten better, thank you, thanks to the influence of Christianity. But for the longest time, women were not treated well, if you look back through history. Were treated as second-class humanity. And I think it's because they were overlooking this passage. One of the things I like to do is to bake bread. And a lot of times what they'll have you do is make this large lump, and then if you're going to make two pizzas, you cut that lump in half and you create two of them. Is one lump more dough than the other? No. It comes from the same thing. It's all the same mixture. It's all the same ingredients. And it's the same thing here. If God were to make Eve out of the dust and breathe into her the life, we might think, well, is there something different about her? Are we not truly the same? But here from this, it's undeniable. It's made from Adam's body. It's as clear as possible that these two are equal in worth. These two bear the image of God together and as such cannot be mistreated one or the other. Then I think the third reason why he does it this way, and this is something that I'm I'm sure many of you have heard of, but it's worth repeating. It's a preacher by the name of Matthew Henry. He's a minister and commentator in England in the late 1600s. Surely some of you have had his commentary. This was his comment on this verse. He says, The woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think he gets it. And I think that's what the Bible is trying to picture here for us. As Adam now meets Eve, this is something that no animal can do. Also notice this is not something that some other man is able to do for Adam. That Adam is given a wife, not a friend. He these is needed in order for them to produce, in order for this to be a marriage. And then here we get Adam's reaction to marriage and to Eve. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here another commentator says that Adam was not only the first scientist, but the first poet. A real Renaissance man, this guy. As he meets his bride. And then you'll notice here in this part, this is the, one of the few times where it's like Moses stops the tape and then comes in to give us a little commentary. We've just seen the creation of Adam and Eve and the creation of marriage. And then Moses sticks in and says, <clears throat> you see, therefore, what we've just seen here, this is the reason why we leave father and mother behind. This is the reason why you hold fast because of what we have here. It goes to show the importance of this being a literal thing. God's not pointing to a fairy tale and saying, this is why. He is saying, no, this is the first marriage. This is the prototype. This is what it's supposed to be. 
I could have designed it some other way. We could have had Adam split in half to create new people. But he doesn't. He says, I'm going to make this to where it's a man and a woman together. And I'm going to make this so that when they get together, they leave behind everything else. Fathers, mothers, that's left behind. And we cleave to one another, holding fast to each other. Because now, they're one flesh. Now, why is it that he would do it this way? Well, as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, that this is meant to be Christ in the church. That we, as husbands, are supposed to love our wives the way Christ loves the church. Which is loving her even when she's not so lovable. Uh, The church is to submit to Christ just as wives are to submit to their husbands. Even when things aren't as always clear as we would like them. This is the picture of what marriage is to be and what it's supposed to look like. But there is one thing here in verse 25. That's a little different than how we experience marriage. Verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This points us and is going to be where we'll actually begin as we look into Genesis chapter 3. Because what this is giving to us is there is something different here. Adam and Eve don't have any clothes on. And the reason for that is there was nothing to hide. There was no threat in this beautiful garden. There was no secrets between Adam and Eve. Something that we will see very much change when we get into Genesis chapter 3. And it's something that when we look at this passage and we look into our own marriages, we'll say it's like, yeah, those two were in paradise, but we're not. We're dealing with the effects of chapter 3. We're all wearing clothes because we have things to hide. We don't trust each other. Here, relationships in Genesis chapter 2, which is what the Lord was providing for Adam, was a beautiful thing, meant to mirror the relationships that's in the Trinity. But it's broken now. So what do we do? Well, at least for our lives here today, we're not able to return fully back to Eden. There is no place where we can go where there's no trouble anymore. Or the circumstances of life don't bother us. But just because Adam and Eve fell, this does not mean marriage did. And in fact, there was another picture that he sets up for us, as we've mentioned a couple times already, in Ephesians chapter 5. If we're honest, when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we would say, I don't know how this is possible. I don't know how I can love my wife. Have you seen her lately? Or say, I don't know how I can submit to that guy. He's an idiot. We laugh. But in a crowd this size, I know that that's what's going on. We live in a sinful world. And we're sinful people. That are told that we need to be one flesh. That are told that we are able to trust each other. This is part of the reason why we have a sexual union in marriage. It's meant to picture what we saw back in Genesis. In some ways, a return to Eden of being vulnerable, leaving all of that open to each other. 
But that's not what we see anymore. So how do we get back to, back to this? How do we have marriage as it's supposed to be? This is where Christ comes in. Unless you're in Christ, marriage is impossible. You can patch it up and it can hobble along, but it's not what it's supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the image of God. It's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And if you yourself haven't submitted to the gospel, you can't possibly image it. This is one of the things that is missed so often in secular counseling. We'll see books like Laughing Your Way to a Better Marriage or These Three Steps to Get to This Point. It's not that simple. Marriage requires a transformation of heart. Marriage requires, in order to love someone selflessly, you have to realize that you have been loved selflessly. That Christ has come and loved you deeply, deeply enough to die. There's no way that you're going to get to the point where you're going to submit to your husband if you haven't submitted to Christ. It simply won't work. You need to come to Jesus. And he's going to be the one that will give you what marriage is supposed to be. Because that's the picture. It's of him. So, what does this mean for you and I practically? I know we can put on a good face to be here at church. But when we get back into the car, when we get back home, and we find those troubles again, what do we do? How do we live marriage as we're supposed to? This, again, comes to staying close to Jesus, giving all of these marriage problems to him, and looking, as I said at first, to say, it's like, all right, what does the Lord need to improve on me? If your spouse is a Christian, God has promised to work on him or her. He's working on it. So now you work on what it is that he has for you to to be doing. What is it, the things that you are struggling in? Give those things to Christ. Be praying for him. Be praying for your spouse. Be praying for yourself. Work together to see what you've got in these things. If you say, it's like, you know, I I really don't know how even to take the first step in something like this. If you'd like to, I have a, um, a marriage assessment tool that I've come across. It's wonderful. I've been taking some of the church officers through it. This is something that, that you would like to do. I found a fantastic 30-day devotional that keeps bringing you back to the gospel, keeps bringing you back to Jesus. And that's going to be the only way that marriage is going to improve. I know that I'm praying for you all. I know that this is hard in a post-fall world, that life is not the way that it is in Eden, that there are troubles. But Jesus promises he will make all things new. That includes our marriages. And I pray that he's making that so for you today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we've had together. As we remember that you have made us to need relationship, to need each other. So I pray that you would help us to remind, to, to remind us how much we need you. I pray for the marriages that are in our midst, for those that are struggling, for those that are thriving. Pray that they would constantly keep their eyes on you. Remind themselves of the gospel, how much they themselves need it, and then be able to bring Jesus to each other. 
Lord, if there are those that are struggling, Lord, I pray that they would seek out that help, that they would not hide, not try to cover it up with leaves, but that they would come to you to seek help in the church so that their marriages might better reflect the gospel the way you've intended. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.